The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Well, let's continue our worship of our great God as we look to God's Word together. If you have a Bible, you might want to open up to Titus chapter 3. That's where we'll be today. If you want to follow along in the outline on the back of your bulletin, you're welcome to do that. Well, those of you who haven't been with us on a regular basis, just so you know, we go through the Bible, usually a a book at a time in the New Testament, because the New Testament was written for the church, and it's God practically instructing us and teaching us how we are to live as Christians, individual lives, and also how we are supposed to conduct ourselves in the church by way of how we do ministry and relationships, and so Titus is one of those books, it's at the end of your, or about middle New Testament, One of the epistles written by the Apostle Paul, one of his 13 letters. It's one of his shorter ones, uh, but been filled with all kinds of practical wisdom. Came straight from heaven on how we're supposed to conduct ourselves in the church. So we are now finishing, getting close to it, book of Titus as we've been going through chapter section at a time. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. And Titus was written at the end of Paul's ministry. He... Uh, first he opposed the church and was a persecutor of the church and actually prided himself on killing Christians and then God got a hold of him and shook him and changed his heart and saved him and he became a Christian. Not only becoming a Christian, became an apostle. Probably one of the greatest Christians that has ever lived. So quite the transformation that Paul went through. And then he had almost a three-decade long ministry of being a church planter and uh, traveling and encouraging saints and God used him to write a portion of the New Testament, including 13 letters that were written to individuals and to individual churches. And Titus is one of those. And Titus was written at the end of Paul's ministry, not too long before he was arrested and then executed for his faith in Christ. This letter is written to the individual Titus. Titus was a friend of Paul, but also an associate of Paul and someone that Paul mentored for probably more than 20 years. And Titus and Paul had the privileged to land on this island in the Mediterranean called Crete. And there the gospel had gone there. And these once total pagans and who were actually came from the people of Phoenicia and the Philistines had become an embrace to the gospel. And so Christians were popping up on the island of Crete, and even little house churches, and they lacked information and divine revelation. So God in his grace sent Paul there and Titus give them further biblical information about how to be Christians and how to conduct a biblical church. And so really that's what this letter amounts to. And also there was a problem there in Titus as false teachers were infiltrating these little house churches and spreading false doctrine and also just were being vicious, hypercritical, really tools of Satan. And they needed to be silenced and weeded out and the true Christians needed to discern on how to point out what a false Christian is and what a true one is. And uh, that's kind of one of the themes of Titus. It's a, it's a corrective to false teachers and ungodly leadership in a local church. So in summary, chapter 1, Titus lays out what biblically qualified leaders in a church look like. Chapter 2, we already addressed, talks about how Christians are supposed to conduct themselves as they relate to one another in the church body, how we get along with other Christians. And then chapter 3, he concludes... But the big theme of how we're supposed to live as Christians in the world, how do we relate to unbelievers as we rub shoulders with unbelievers from day to day wherever we go? We kind of wrap that up. And now, really, we're uh, nearing the conclusion where he's going to make some summary statements and wrap things up and bid farewell to these Christians in Crete. And so he actually kind of circles back around now in verses 10 and 11, if you'll look there. Let me start reading in verse 8 of chapter 3. As Paul concludes this little epistle, he says, This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently, he said, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. And then he says goodbye. So he, he ends this letter kind of on a negative note, and that's just this reminder that, remember I 
when I was there, you had problems in Crete in the churches. And as I was writing this letter at the beginning, I acknowledged the problems you have there in your churches in Crete. That's how he began his letter. He began by addressing problems in the church. And so that's how he's concluding. He doesn't want them to forget, man, we got real problems in the church and they have to do with people because people occupy and populate churches. People are a problem. And so he's uh, bringing closure to this idea and reminding Christians you need to be realistic. If you are looking for the perfect church, uh, good luck. Sayonara. You ain't going to find it. That's all there is to it. Because churches are exist on a fallen, cursed planet. And lo and behold, churches are filled with sinful, fallen people. Hence, you're, you're not going to find a perfect church. And so he's addressing realistically problems that need to be addressed. So we need to, because there are no church, uh, perfect churches, we need to be doing ongoing maintenance in the church. Ongoing maintenance. Continual, ongoing, forever. Kind of like being parents. If you have children in the family, there are no perfect kids. Newsflash, parents, there are no perfect children. And as a result, as parents, you have to be on, doing ongoing, continual maintenance from the time they are born until they get to college. No, till after college. No, till they get married. No, even while they're married. And on and on it goes. And so it's also true in the church. It is required of the leadership to do ongoing maintenance in the church. It, is nev- it never stops. It is continual. It is ongoing. It's a reality. So, And Paul was a realist. And he's giving heavenly information about how to address problems in the church. We need to be realistic about it. Note the title of today's sermon. Holy Rejection. Whoa. Holy rejection. I don't, have you ever heard such a phrase? Well, that was the best summary I could come up with uh, of what Paul was trying to communicate in verses 10 and 11. Really, 9, 10, and 11 kind of go together. But he brings up a specific issue he wants to address in verse 10. And it's, the theme is holy rejection. Rejection. Many times we think of rejection as a negative word, as a word that has no place in Christianity. Rejection, shunning, avoiding, that has no place in with the meaning of love, right? So many have this definition of love that love means just to tolerate everything and everybody all the time, no matter what. But that's not a definition of love. Love doesn't mean just tolerate everything all the time without discernment, without discretion. Or love is to absorb all things or to allow all things or to accept all things. Christians get confused by that, of what true love is. Well, Jesus loved everybody, you might hear. Mm, yeah. Jesus loved everybody. I, I think I can agree with that. But the corollary, Jesus loved everybody, but Jesus didn't treat everybody the same. Well, that's significant. Go through the Gospels and, and just observe how Jesus treats every single person as you read. He treats the woman at the well with love, very patiently. Very forgiving manner, very graciously. And then he runs into a Pharisee, a religious Pharisee who has the Old Testament memorized, who's a master teacher of the Word of God. And there's not a whole lot of warm fuzzies reserved for the Pharisee many times by Jesus and just gives them full-on frontal assault of a verbal rebuke in public. Did he love them? Yeah, but... He loves everybody, but he doesn't treat everybody the same. And so also us as Christians, as we think about Christian love and Christian etiquette and Christian practice, we love everyone, but we don't treat everyone the same depending upon the circumstance or what's going on. And so uh, hence we have what I call holy rejection. This needs to, this idea, this ministry, the ministry of rejection. Have you ever heard of that? I think I made it up. The minute we need to be involved in the ministry of rejection. The ministry of shunning. Well, where did I get that? Um, look at verse 9, chapter 3. Avoid. That was what we talked about last week. That was the main command last week. Was avoid, shun, stay away from, have nothing to do. That's the ministry of shunning. And then this week, it's very similar, verse 10. Reject. That's a command. The ministry of rejection. We need to add that to our worldview and our arsenal and our full balanced approach to biblical Christian ministry, the ministry of rejection, hence holy rejection. 
I put there by way of introduction. God demands a holy church. He told his people, be holy for I am holy. One of the ways that God keeps his church pure is through church discipline. When a professing believer fails to heed God's warnings, then that person is to be purged or rejected from the local church, thus preserving holiness in the body of Christ. Hence the need for the ministry of holy rejection. So as we look at holy rejection, I took two verses and just tried to come up with four principles we can keep in mind and wrap our thoughts around. And we'll just go ahead and look at those. Uh, The first three are in verse 10, and then the last one is in verse 11. Holy rejection. This is highly needed in the world in which we live. We live in a world of uh, pluralism, they call it, or tolerance. Everything is to be, everything and everybody's supposed to be tolerated, we're told. Except if you're a hardcore Bible-believing Christian, then really there's no tolerance for you. But anyway, everybody else and everything else is supposed to be tolerated. Well, not so in the church. There are clear lines and parameters that God has drawn where we are supposed to reject, avoid, shun. Last week, verse 9, what was to be shunned or avoided was actually topics of conversation. The content of certain topics of conversation are to be shunned or avoided. This is great for uh, if you're a church leader, a pastor, an elder. This is good to remember this, that uh, not everything is fair game or should be entertained. Some of it is just strictly to be, you know, look at the hand. Not, and you don't even deal with that topic. Don't talk about it. It's just it's simply controversial. It just, leads, it just breeds dissension, undermines peace in the, in the church. So avoid those things. That was last week. Then he moves from avoiding certain topics to now avoiding certain people. And that's verse 10 and 11. And that's the topic of holy rejection. Reject a factious man. By the way, the word for man is just generic. Really what it means is reject a factious person. This could be a woman as well. Reject a factious man or woman. Could be a younger person. After a first and second warning... Knowing that such a man is perverted or woman and is sinning, being self-condemned. So the first thing I want to look at is the command for rejection. The command. What is the command? Well, it's right there, verse 10. Reject. He's talking to Titus. So he's telling Titus, Titus, you need to be ready and willing to reject certain people even in the church that you pastor and where you work. In other words, you need to reject some people who call themselves Christians. You need to reject potentially uh, church members if necessary. Whoa. That, that can be hard to do. That can be controversial. My experience, that takes great courage, great wisdom from on high for church leaders to actually do this. To actually reject somebody from the church, especially if they're a member of the church. It's one of the most difficult things to do. But it's a command. The command for rejection. It is clear. It is to the point. And he's telling Titus as a church leader, not only do you need to be ready to reject a factious person, you need to communicate that to the leaders in your churches that you're dealing with, that they need to be ready to reject a factious person. And every other Christian needs to implement this as an obligation of what they are supposed to do at times is reject a factious person. It's a command. We must do it. Here's another news flash. I was thinking of all the churches that I've ever been a part of and all the pastors that I know personally, especially in the Bay Area immediately that I've been able to talk to and interact with in fellowship recently in the last one to five years. I can think of every local church that I know of where there's a pastor where they had, to, where they had factious people in their church. Factious members, factious professing Christians. And different churches deal with those people differently. Some ignore it. Some uh, try to appease them. Some actually follow the biblical mandate and do what it says right here in Titus. Some don't. But the reality is, is every church that I could think of that I knew, the pastor, that they, they've all at times or another given a story where there was a factious person in their church and a factious member. So as long as your church exists, if your church is old enough, you're going to have factious people arise in your church. They will, be, they will come from within and without. They will try to enter the church, factious people, but you also have factious people rise from within your membership. 
in your church. That's just a reality. So we can't put our hand in the sands and ignore it, even if they're members. There's a command here from God that we need to reject factious people. So that is the command. Reject a factious man. Well, what is a factious man or a factious woman? We're going to talk about that in just a second, but I want to talk a little bit more about reject this command. It just simply, it's an emphatic term, by the way, compound term in the Greek, and it means have nothing to do with, refuse, literally put outside of, not have fellowship with, not have communion with, don't associate with, don't hang out with, don't uh, have a meal or coffee with them at Starbucks is what that means. At all levels, they are just to be cut off, isolated from the church, from social interaction, from conversation. This includes email exchanges, isolation. Look at Second John, because here's a parallel. Another command of shunning, of rejecting a certain person. And in Second John, an epistle we don't look at too often, Verses 10 and 11. This is John the Apostle warning Christians, warning the church. If anyone, verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, so not only are factious people to be rejected, but false teachers are also supposed to be rejected. You don't accommodate, you don't negotiate with terrorists, and you don't negotiate with false teachers, and you don't negotiate with factious people. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. Paul also talks about don't even eat a meal with such a one. Pretty harsh, isn't it? Seems like it. But that's what God requires. They have spiritual leprosy. They'll poison you and they'll poison everybody else. And that's why they need to be quarantined, isolated, shunned. You have nothing to do with them. Literally refuse association with this person. Put them outside. This is not a new truth from the New Testament. This is all over the book of Proverbs. Where Proverbs says to do this. Reject a factious man. Have nothing to do with a fool. Reject them. Remove the scoffer from your midst. I was a teacher, a classroom teacher for years. All the way from first grade to twelfth grade. Mostly with seventh grade through high school. And I had to have a classroom of 34 seventh graders. And, you know, a couple weeks into it, it'd be really clear if there was a factious student in the class. And all it takes is one factious, slanderous, conniving, gossiping, undermining, backstabbing, poisoned little person who is factious. They, they can poison the entire classroom behind your back and undermine your authority in the classroom. That's the book of Proverbs talking about remove the troublemaker from your midst. And then you're just going to, it's amazing how much peace and calm will be in the class if you just remove that negative influence. So this is an Old Testament truth as well. And so I, I would do that as a teacher. Just based on the book of Proverbs, remove the scoffer from you. They've, they've had a warning. They've had a second warning. They've had a fifth warning. This is not working. I'm telling the principal. And you remove the scoffer from you. And just it puts the whole class at ease and you can actually teach and continue with your business. So this is a biblical principle all throughout of rejecting a factious person. And again, this means putting them out. And Paul's talking about in the church. You will have factious people who arise and they need to be put out of the church in an appropriate manner as you go through the proper discipline as God has required in Scripture. Putting them out, refusing them, and you've got to encourage your people to do the same. It has to be a full, a full, full on press from everybody in the church has to be in sync doing the same thing treating this person the same way that will have the greatest effect on this person in terms of being bringing guilt upon them so that god may soften their heart and bring them to repentance so this is a command for the whole church to reject a factious man so it wasn't just titus this was a corporate call for everybody to identify that factious person and have them put out of the church i'm telling you every church has factious people and we need to follow through on this so that is the command for rejection. By the way, in terms of this idea of uh, the ministry of rejection, I mean, Jesus did this. You know, immediately some people think, well, this is so unloving. This is so unlike the spirit of Jesus. Isn't he all just about love, love, love and kissing babies? No. Jesus had the ministry of rejection. 
He rejected the Pharisees. Uh, also, uh, a part of Jesus' ministry of rejection was where he just refused to go certain places. He refused to step into certain cities because of their hardened heart. He avoided certain people by virtue of his ministry of rejection. When he trained his apostles, think of Matthew 10, and he's sending them out on short-term door-to-door missionary endeavors. He told them and warned them, if somebody doesn't receive you into the house, if somebody doesn't receive this message, then you shake the dust off your feet and you leave. Have nothing to do with those people. That is the ministry of rejection. Don't sit there and debate with them. Don't lock horns with them. Don't argue with them. Don't try to convince them. No, you turn and you leave. Shake the dust off your feet. This is similar also when Jesus said, don't throw your pearls before swine. What are pearls? Pearls are precious things, valuable things, things that are valuable to you, blessings that are valuable, truths that are valuable to you. And the last thing you're supposed to do is take your truths and throw them at the feet of people who don't like your truths. They despise your Christianity. They despise what the Bible says. They despise your Jesus. And so Jesus says, don't throw your pearls before swine like that. Turn and Leave those people. Don't say anything. Don't interact with them at all. That is the ministry of rejection. I think of Jesus at the end of his ministry just before he got crucified and he was called into Herod, if you remember that. In his six trials, his six mock trials, one of those was before Herod. And Herod is interrogating him and having him smacked in the face and uh, Herod is reaming him and asking him questions and it says that Jesus answered Herod not a word. That is the ministry of rejection. Some people don't deserve a response or even our attention or social interaction because that is God's one of God's forms of discipline that hopefully will bring a convicting guilt for their sin. So the command for rejection. We need to do this as a church. We need to do this as a people. You need to do this. As a Christian at times in your life, sometimes the person that needs to be rejected might even be your own family member. It's a reality. Reject a factious man. Well, who do we reject? Who are we talking about here? Well, that's number two. After the command for rejection is who's the candidate of rejection? Very important. Who is the factious person? He says, reject a factious man, a factious person, a factious woman. Uh, this person is somebody who is in the church. This is a professing Christian. This is clear. This is clear from parallel passages in Timothy. This is not a factious unbeliever pagan in the world he's talking about. Sometimes those people in certain circumstances need to be left in themselves, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about in the church, a professing Christian, uh, could even be a member of your church, somebody who uses biblical language, spiritual jargon. You might even think, yeah, they're a believer. So that's who the candidate is. This is a fellow Christian in the body of Christ. That's what makes this so hard. It's like cutting off one of your own limbs. That's painful. That's why this takes great courage, prayer, wisdom, discernment, follow through. The candidate for rejection. This is a believer or a professing Christian might not be a believer. Professing Christian in the local church. Partners in ministry. The factious man, factious, uh, unique word, factious, uh, different English translations translate it differently. Some say the divisive person. That's what it means. Factious, actually, this word, I think, is used only one time in the New Testament as an adjective. It's used as a, I think, as a noun in Galatians 5. We'll look at that in just a second. So it is a very rare word. It's actually where we get the word heresy from, but the modern day understanding of heresy has nothing to do with the meaning of this word in Titus chapter 3. Heresy strictly is reserved today for false teaching. That is not what this is talking about. This is not talking about false teaching. They are being rejected not for their false or bad theology at all. They're being rejected for their lousy, rotten, stinking, divisive attitude and their words that go with it. So it's all about heart and all about attitude. It's not about teaching. So uh, the word very specifically uh, translated by several commentators. Um, actually, the root word for this means literally to choose. And then that's kind of extrapolated into a person who chooses to follow their own agenda. A person who chooses to follow their own opinions. And actually what they do is they choose to take their opinions, usually in gray area issues, usually they are petty 
issues and insignificant issues, and they elevate them to the level of biblical authority. They even try to supplant truths of biblical authority with their own self-willed opinions to choose. And they become a law unto themselves by virtue of their opinion, the way things ought to be. That's what this word means. That's why English translations translate this word as a factious person, a divisive person. Because that's what it means. A factious person is someone who is verbally divisive. They are slanderous. They are prone to gossip. They defy authority, by the way, particularly the authority of the Bible, which tells them not to gossip or slander, and also the authority of the local church. Because usually their factious, divisive, gossiping behavior is directly undermining the leadership of the church. And we see that in almost all of Paul's epistles. So that is a factious person. They are divisive. They, their mouth is going. They have loose lips. They're secret. They are deliberate. They operate many times behind the scenes undetected. They operate in little groups and develop little factions. That's a related word, by the way. Creating little cliques undetected initially all over the church. And what they do is they gravitate and they just... Talk, I don't know if you ever saw uh, VeggieTales and the rumor weed. Great video. Watch it with your family tonight. But anyway, so the rumor weed is going out and talking to everybody. Did you hear? Did you know? Have you heard? That's how it starts. And then, ooh, you captivate somebody's interest. And then you usually couch it in spiritual language or you even use Bible terms. And what you're trying to do is see if you got a candidate who's going to give you an ear. And then when you, they've, you've got their ear, then they suck you in. And then you start talking and then more and more conversation. And before you know it, you are totally an audience for them and they are filling your brain with all kinds of stuff. And many times uh, you become poisoned and you don't even realize it. And your attitude is tainted towards other people in the church, the leadership in the church, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You begin to question uh, the integrity and the character of people you once knew and respected in the church, the leaders and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how this works. That's what this factious person does. They don't initially do this out loud with a megahorn or a megaphone. It's behind the scenes, quietly here and here, like the pinball going from place to place, trying to find an audience. Listen to how uh, Warren Wiersbe addresses this. Warren Wiersbe, he's probably in his 80s, and he's like known as the pastor of pastors, pastored for 50 years, just an incredible man of God, written... Commentary on every book in the Bible. Very insightful. Commenting on this passage in Titus, here's what Warren Wiersbe says. Uh, Let's see, there's another kind of problem person we should deal with in the church, and that's the heretic, because that's the literal Greek word here. But it means a divisive person. This word means, quote, one who makes a choice. See, it's all about them. Me, 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 my agenda, my choice, what I want, what I like, what I want changed, what you guys should do. What I don't like. Well, one who makes a choice, a person who causes divisions. They make a choice, and the byproduct is it causes divisions. This is a self-willed person who thinks he or she is right, and who goes, get this, from person to person in the church, usually secretly and behind the scenes undetected initially, forcing people to make a choice. Whoa. What do you think of this elder? What do you think of that Bible study? What do you think of this Sunday school teacher? What do you think of the pastor? Force you to make a choice that you shouldn't be forced to make. Forcing people to make a choice, quote, are you for me or for the pastor, end quote. This is a work of the flesh. Galatians 5.20, such a person should be admonished at least twice and then rejected. He goes on, how do we apply this uh, imperative in the local church? Let me suggest one way. If a church member goes about trying to get a following and then gets angry and leaves the church, then let them go. If they come back, maybe the other churches don't want them either. That is so true. And if he or she shows a repentant attitude, then receive them back. If they repeat this behavior, and they usually do, receive them back a second time. But if he or she does it a third time, do not receive them back into the fellowship. Three strikes, you are out. Titus 3.10. Why not? Quote, such a man is warped in character, keeps on sinning, and has condemned himself. Titus 3.11. If more churches would follow this principle, the ministry of rejection, then we would have fewer church tramps who cause problems in various churches. 
So says Pastor Wiersbe with good biblical advice. So the candidate is a factious person in the church who is divisive, who's prone to gossip, um, who is argumentative, who is typically petty, contentious. They are, tend to be know-it-alls too, if you've ever interacted with these people. Uh, they are arrogant, they're proud, they think they know everything. They are not submissive to authority. They are religious and speak with biblical terminology usually. They are self-righteous. They're the only ones that can do it right. Everybody else can't do it right. They have a critical spirit by nature. This is good to kind of self-evaluate about your own personality. Am I a critical person by nature or am I not? Because I don't want to be susceptible to this being a factious person. Critical spirit. Uh, they're negative and not positive. And probably most importantly, they are not a peacemaker. They're, they're not interested in Jesus' commands that he gave. Blessed are the peacemakers. Or the Apostle Paul who said in Romans 12, insofar as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. They're not interested in that. Let's go to Galatians 5 because this is interesting how Paul takes the same word and he uses it as a different part of speech, not as an adjective, but as a noun. And he clumps it in a group of fleshly behavior and sin. Look at Galatians chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 19. And he's talking about uh, manifestations of the fruits of the Spirit when you're walking in obedience and living a godly lifestyle or when you're walking in the flesh and manifesting deeds of the flesh. And they are clearly manifest. And any, any one of us at any given time can stop right where we are and put our life, our actions, our words, our attitudes through this grid and determine right there on the spot I'm either walking in the Spirit or I'm walking in the flesh. You're having a an argument with your spouse and you're getting out of hand, you are walking in the flesh because I guarantee you're probably manifesting some of the deeds of the flesh. So it's a great way to diagnose where we're at at any given time. So look at verse 19. These are the deeds of the flesh. Now the deeds of the flesh, they are evident. They are clearly manifest. There is no questioning what it looks like. So it should be easy really for a Christian, a discerning Christian, to identify a factious person in the church. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality. The word there is porneia. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, and idolatry. Those actually all go together in sorcery. They're all related. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and sorcery. Then the, the second group are all related of deeds of the flesh. Enmity, that's when you're fighting with someone. Strife, you are not in good relations with a fellow believer. Jealousy, you got problems with what somebody else has and you want it. Outbursts of anger towards another person. Disputes. Dissensions with other people. Factions. There it is. Factions and envying. So this word faction, factions, a factious person, this is grouped in this sin in Galatians 5 that has to do with social sins. Corporate sins, relational sins. You have a problem getting along with other people. That's what the sin is. And the factious person has a problem getting along with other people because of their behavior, because of their bad heart and their bad attitude and their loose lips and their their, uh, gossiping ways and slanderous ways. So going back to uh, Titus chapter 3. So the candidate of rejection is the factious self-willed person, someone who places uh, self-willed opinions above truth, refusing to consider views contrary to their own. And they don't they usually aren't arguing about real substantive biblical issues. This is the periphery. These are tangents. These are preferences. These are gray area issues. They want to fight about that. So the command is for rejection. The candidate is the factious person. Three, the caution of rejection. This is the caution we give the factious person. We identify it in the church. We see, oh, here's some dissentious behavior. Here's some gossiping, slanderous, divisive behavior. Well, when we identified who it is, we need to talk to that person. And Paul, you know, cuts straight to the chase here. When you identify a divisive person in the church, Titus, you need to go immediately to that person and you need to warn them. You need to warn them with information saying what you're doing. Here's what you did. Here's uh, the evidence, 
Here are the consequences. Here are how you're undermining the unity of the body and the, the gospel of Christ. It's one of the worst sins you can actually commit in the church because of its corporate ramifications and social ramifications of how it can poison so many so quickly. Division in the church, being a divisive person, is one of the most dangerous, undermining, explosive sins that can be committed in a church because of the social ramifications of how it can affect so many people and especially how it can undermine leadership in a church. That's why it needs to be dealt with immediately. So look at the form of discipline here. The caution of rejection, the the factious person is to be identified and then they are to be admonished, rebuked, talked to once, twice, and then if they don't heed the second time, they're gone. Strike three, you're out. Now, if you're paying close attention, you realize, well, wait a minute, that does not sound like the Matthew 18 process. Aren't there four steps in Matthew 18? Yes. Here Paul gives only two. Well, two doesn't equal four. Yeah, you are correct. You are a mathematician. Houston, we got a problem. No, we don't have a problem. So here's what you need to change in your thinking about Christianity and discipline in the church. There's not just one way to do church discipline in the church. There's at least three different ones that I can think of. There's Matthew 18, which has four steps of church discipline. And that just refers to just regular old daily maintenance in the church of problems with people. And you go step by step. First, you you find out about a sin. You got sinned against. You go privately with that person in prayer. It's just the two of you. You talk privately. You confront them. You give them the evidence. Hopefully they repent. They hear you. If they hear you, you forgive them. The restored the relationship is restored, never to be repeated again. And nobody else needs to know about it. But you talk to that person. They don't listen to you. Then you go get one or two other people and you bring them in. And then you have a plurality of witnesses confronting the sinner. If the sinner hears you, you forgive it. It's forgotten. Nobody else needs to know about it. If they don't listen, then you go and you tell it to the church and then it becomes a public awareness only after uh, much due diligence has been done regarding this sin and then the church confronts the sinner if the sinner finally repents then the whole church forgives it's a done deal if the church confronts and the person doesn't repent then they are put out of the church and treated like a tax collector so that's a fourfold process that takes great time and care along the way this is totally different this is a different method of uh, church discipline there's only Three steps, not four. The first step is confronting them to the face. The second step is confronting them to the face with a warning, telling them to stop, cease and desist immediately, or you're out. And the third time, if they keep doing that, they are out. They are rejected. They are put out of the church. That's not four steps. Also, uh, basically in the Matthew 18 process, steps two and three are bypassed in this Titus passage. You don't have to go get witnesses and bring them the second time. You can do it yourself. So say the pastor had to deal with it. Say I had to deal with a factious person in the church. I identified it. I warned them. I admonished them. And I tell them, you need to stop immediately doing this, creating division in the church. Stop it. Stop your talking. Stop undermining the leadership of the church. If you, if you don't, ramifications will be severe and quick. And I call you to repentance. And Lord willing, they do repent. If they repent, you forgive. If they continue, you warn them a second Time. And I can do it all by myself. It doesn't say go get two or three witnesses. Warned again, they continue to sin, then they are put out of the church, and you have to notify the rest of the church. This person was divisive. They were factious. They were gossiping. They undermined the church. They created factions. Uh, usually the church body is totally unaware of it. They're not privy to any of this. And that's why the church members are caught off guard. Whoa, what do you mean so-and-so got put out of the church? Why? I didn't hear anything. I didn't see anything. Well, you weren't supposed to. You have to rely, you have to depend, you have to trust your leadership. That's key, I'll say it again. You have to trust your leadership. Well, don't trust the leadership, then go to another church. It's really that simple. And you have to trust that your leaders are doing the biblical thing, the godly thing, the prayerful thing, the patient thing, that they're doing it the right way, the way that God calls. And this is, this is a harsh form of discipline. And then there's another uh, method of church discipline. So there's Matthew 18, which is four steps. There's this one, which is three steps. And then there's another form of church discipline uh, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. It's actually not mentioned. It's modeled. And also in Galatians 2, where it is modeled. And that is where there is corporate sin or where there's public sin, there needs to be an immediate public rebuke. On the spot. That's totally different than... The first two that I just said. So when it comes to church discipline, you can't just be thinking, well, that you didn't do Matthew 18. Well, this sin probably didn't require Matthew 18. So it's case by case. It depends on the sin. 
of what method of church discipline you need to use, whether it's Matthew 18, the fourfold process, whether it's Titus 3, and this is a divisive, factious person that needs to be warned and admonished, or, it could, or this was a public sin, whether it's public sexual immorality, public immorality, public compromise, uh, could be the compromise of the leader of a church, uh, public teaching that is totally wrong and heretical, it needs to be immediately addressed publicly with severe consequences. So a public sin requires a public rebuke. Just examples for you. Ananias and Sapphira, who were, I believe they were Christians. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. They went to the evening Vesper service on a Sunday night. What they, in secret beforehand, they lied and stole some money that belonged to the church. And they got there Sunday night or whenever it was, and Peter rebuked them on the spot. And they died right there. Boom. So much for four steps of Matthew 18. So you're going to heaven. Zap! Boom. And they fell over dead. Uh, another instance of public sin that requires a public rebuke, Galatians chapter 2, where Paul said, Peter, the head apostle, Pope Peter, smart guy, man of God, but he was a sinner. And he got into a point where he kind of wanted the uh, support of Jewish Christians, and so he decided, oh, I can't be hanging out with these Gentile Christians so I'm not going to hang out with them anymore. And I'm going to pretend that Gentile Christians have the cooties and I'm going to hang out with the Jewish Christians so the Jewish Christians don't think ill of me. And Paul caught wind of this and he sees Peter being a compromiser. What in the world are you doing? All Christians are equal in Christ. Peter, you know better than this. And Paul said, I rebuked Peter to the face in public. No Matthew 18, four steps. No, pulling him aside, let's privately talk about this. It was a public sin that required and demanded a public rebuke. And it became a learning lesson for everybody. And Peter knew it was right, and he became humbled. And he came to respect Paul highly. We know that at the end of Second Peter, of what he says about Paul. So this is one of three uh, forms of church discipline that I see in Scripture uh, on the caution of rejection. And you give that factious person a stern warning, you give them the facts, you call them to repentance, and you give them a chance, you give them the benefit of the doubt, and you monitor their behavior. And then you see it again. Oh, they didn't stop. Here's your second warning, and by the way, this is your final warning. If you do not stop, you will be put out of the church, effective immediately. Look at Romans 16. There, there are actually a lot of parallel passages to this form of discipline. Usually the context, usually the sin is division or divisiveness. Somebody who's talking and creating gossip in little factions in the church and usually undermining the leadership of the church as Warren Wiersbe pointed out. So you're going to side with me or the pastor? You're going to side with me or the elders? Choose this day whom you will serve. And then uh, Romans 16, at the end of this epistle, the Apostle Paul, here's a parallel passage, verse 17. He's about to wrap it up. He says, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on. See, you need to give special attention to this kind of sin in the church. Now I urge you, keep your eye on. Red flag, yellow flag, five points bulletin. Keep your eye on. Watch out for. Watch cautiously. Watch discerningly. Monitor, gauge. Watch what these people are doing. Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions or divisions or factions. Contrary to the teaching which you learned. What was the teaching? The teaching was maintaining peace in the church. Peace and unity in the church. Peace and unity in the church, which is a manifestation of the love of Christ that will win the world. Said Jesus in John 17 and John 13. And then he says, keep your eye on divisive uh, people and turn away from them. There it is again. Reject them. Turn away from them. Shun them. Have nothing to do with them. Get them out of your midst. They're a bad apple. Get them away. Factious, divisive people. Critical, critical spirits. Talk, talk, talk. Usually in a corner. Usually when they think no one's looking. Very dangerous. And to be dealt with severely. Why? Like I said, because of its social ramifications. This is like poison and gangrene in the body of Christ. Undermining the unity of the church, the love of the church, and also the leadership of the church. Which is damning, it is destructive, which is totally different than, say, another kind of sin that requires Matthew 18, where, say, it's, um, this is a typical compromise in the church. We've all done this one, where you kind of hit and miss in your church attendance, or you start ditching church, 
which people have gotten in the habit of doing, says uh, Hebrews 10. And then say you go and you confront that or you talk to them. Wow, where you been? Or how you doing? Are you doing OK? And it turns out they're just not being disciplined. They're being lazy, whatever. They're just compromising and not coming to church. And you can talk to them privately and then they hear you and they start coming again. And then it was maybe just the two of you talking about it. And they're back in the groove and nobody else knows about it in the church and they don't need to. Because it doesn't really impact adversely anybody else in the church. It's not like a poison or a cancer the way that gossip can be or a factious person. Or maybe somebody stole something and they got caught. Or maybe somebody's uh, struggling with alcohol and they need accountability in their life and you're working with them and it's just the two of you or the four of you and they're working through that sin and nobody else in the church needs to know about it, but there's accountability there. and So that's a different kind of sin in terms of how it impacts everybody else. And there are people dealing with certain sins in their life where nobody else needs to know about it. And as a matter of fact, that their sin or compromise isn't affecting the rest of us. It's not poisoning the rest of us. It's not undermining what Christ is trying to do corporately in the church. And that's why Paul takes division head on with full fury in every one of his epistles. It is one of the worst sins that can be committed in a church. Hence this to the point. One warning, two, strike three, you're out. That's the caution of rejection. Let's go on to the cause of rejection. And that's verse 11. Going back to Titus, uh, the reason you put them out of the church after only two warnings is because knowing that it becomes self-evident. It shouldn't be any surprise when you put somebody out of the church for being a factious person. It shouldn't be. Knowing that, this has become obvious. There is a trail of evidence three miles long. What is the evidence? Their divisive behavior, their gossiping behavior, the little factions they've created along the way over time. Uh, their bad attitude, their lack of submission to the authority in the church, their lack of submission to the war- truth of the Word of God, the fact that they don't have any friends, they're all by themselves, they're a loner, they've isolated themselves, they actually kind of like it and enjoy it. And the, the evidence is the, the, what they've left in their wake of destroyed relationships, destroyed friendships, mean, hurtful words. That's why he said, knowing that, this is a no-brainer. This should become obvious. This is not the fruit of the Spirit, as we saw in Galatians. So an important word there, a phrase, knowing that. That such a person who is factious is perverted. Perfect tense, meaning they became, they just hardened themselves at some point in their past. They just became hardened in the past. And there's ongoing results of that hardness of heart. Ongoing, continual results that has become a pattern of their life. It's like, wow, what happened to that person? When did they become sour? Wow, how did that happen? Perfect tense in the word twisted. Or perverted literally means twisted. They became twisted in their thinking. Their thinking got out of whack at some point in their life. Definitively so. And the ongoing results are their divisive, critical spirit. That's the word perverted. That's what it means. And the tense that is used there. Very graphic and specific. That's why many times these people who are factious, you're like, wow, when did that happen? Wow. I remember when we used to do such and such. Wow. Then the next verb he uses, uh, knowing that they became perverted or twisted in their thinking and in their behavior and is sinning present tense and they continue in their sin. They continue to slander. They continue to talk wrong they continue to have a bad attitude they aren't coming around they aren't heeding the admonition they rejected the first admonition they rejected the second one they don't care they're kicked out of the church they still don't care hence the present tense of the verse sinning this has become a a pattern of life and you know what this kind of attitude isn't going to isolate itself and be reserved to just how they behave in the church this is going to be manifesting itself in every area of their life because it has to do with an attitude a worldview and a lifestyle and a hardness of heart. So it becomes clearly manifest. And that, that's the cause. The cause is the twisted thinking and a pattern of behavior where they won't relent and they won't heed accountability. They won't soften. And it's clear to everybody. As a result, it says, hence, being, they're self-condemned. You don't really need evidence because the evidence is out before all of us. Here's the, here's the trail of evidence. The devastation they've left in their path, they are self-condemned. We consider them con- condemned by virtue of their behavior, their words, and their attitude. Usually this person doesn't feel self-condemned because they don't see the evidence. They're oblivious to it. They are blind. They are self-deceived. That's what's so sad. They are self-deceived. 
Well, what do you do? Well, when you put them out of the church, you don't, you know, oh, goody, they're not here anymore. Ding dong, the witch is dead. No, time to celebrate. It's actually a time of mourning, really. Sadness, mourning, and then ongoing continual prayer for softening of their heart. You know what? God can answer their prayer. I've seen that happen. I've seen it happen. It's been amazing. It's exciting. When God gets a hold of them and the Spirit of God penetrates that hardened heart, and softens it, softens it, and it comes back in the fruit of repentance. That's a glorious thing. That's Paul's theme in Second Corinthians, where he says that happened. The guy was booted out of the church, and then repented and brought him back. And Paul said, "You know, we need to have a party. We need to celebrate. You need to warmly receive and embrace this sinner, and restore them back into the fellowship. Because God, He is a God of grace and a God of the third chance and the fourth chance, isn't He? That is the grace of God. And so that's how we need to think of God with respect to sinners, because we're all susceptible." to this so we can't look down our nose but anyway we do have to be on guard and if we haven't to this day we need to add the ministry of holy rejection to our repertoire of christianity with that let's go ahead and pray and ask for the father's blessing father we do thank you for this day and our time in the word god really a very difficult subject a sobering one a frightening one the sinners were all susceptible to veering off the path, God, and uh, God, we need your help. We need your protection. We need others to help us. And when we get off the path, to come and get us and rescue us. And like Jesus did with the one sheep of the 100, when one went astray, help us to be diligent, to keep mind and watch of anybody going astray in any one of these ways. God, protect us from this. Keep our hearts and our conscience sensitive to truth. And God, if we know anybody in particular that's ever fallen into this trap of a hardness of heart and divisive behavior, and that you'd continue to, your work of the Holy Spirit, softening them, wooing them to yourself, drawing them to repentance, because that, that's your heart's desire for sinners. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to seek and to save those who were lost. And we just pray that you receive the glory in it all. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.